0: Hello! You are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Our Reading Life, in partnership with our friends from Biblioguides.
1: Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, here with Sarah Masarik, and it is lovely to have Tanya Arnold and Sarah Kim back with us today.
0: Tanya and Sarah, we are delighted that we were able to have this conference today. We've had some scheduling issues trying to get this month's episode of Our Reading Life recorded. And this actually came together beautifully today. But it's funny because while it started off as a show to talk about what we're reading and sort of check in on each other, it has become more almost of an accountability thing. And we are kind of pacing ourselves with each other and bouncing off of each other. And because of that, we had originally scheduled to record, we had to cancel. And now it's two weeks later, and all of us are like, wait, but are we going to talk about this thing? Are we going to talk about that thing? And so it's, it's kind of funny today to be here. Uh, this will be a surprise to all of us today because we are out of sync and <laughs> that should be really fun. Cause
1: the dogs bark, but the reading life moves on. What? So true. <laughs> what does that mean? You don't, you don't know that saying that, that the dogs bark, but the carrot no. moves on. Oh, okay. No. Sorry.
0: Enlighten us. That's the saying.
1: <laughs> now I'm forgetting where, <laughs> where, where it is- comes. Uh, look it up, Tanya. Quick. No, I will. I forgot. I just, I just read the no it the other night.
2: I'm looking it up.
0: Are you sure it's not a saying from one of those books that you read for us so we don't have to?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's referred to in Hundred Dalmatians. That's what reminded me of it. Oh. Because, you know, when they come up to the gypsies, he yeah. turns it around yeah. and says something like, Caravan barks, but the dogs move on. Because the gypsies' <laughs> dogs were locked in the caravans,
2: right? So, right. It doesn't come from a book. Some scholars claim that the proverb is originally Arabic, uh-huh. which makes sense. The dogs bark, but the caravan goes on.
0: Okay, wow. Well done, oh, Diane. Diane.
1: <laughs> Sorry about my sidetrack. <laughs> oh,
0: Reading no, doesn't it's stand it's still. Not... How about that? <laughs> no, it does not. For sure. <laughs> All right. So, Sarah, let's start with you this month. What are you reading? Well,
3: I'm going to talk first a little bit about what I finished reading, and then I'll tell you what I'm reading now. I finished The Bomb uh, by Theodore Taylor that I talked about before, and I did want to mention just a couple things about it. I did add pretty extensive content considerations to biblioguides for this book near the beginning. It does talk about Kind of some of the atrocities, specifically towards women, Mm -hmm. that the Japanese soldiers that were stationed on the island were were doing, and the main character's strong feelings about that, and like need to take care of his sister, and then also just the whole story is really tragic. Um, You know, the ending is tragic, not just with the bomb, but also for the main character. And I think it's helpful to know that like the incident with the bomb actually happened. That's a true event, but the main character and the characters in the story are fictional. And so it's like his, it happened to his people, but the particular characters are, are fictional. And the author, like I said, was stationed um was u.s military and stationed on the boat that was there at the island so it's just helpful to know like what was fictional and what's not as you're kind of going into the story and realizing like okay this didn't actually happen to this person um
0: but it's the personification of things that did happen
3: Yes, exactly. And and like I said, the whole thing is tragic. I looked up, like, I think you're kind of fascinated as you read this, like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? And then you're curious, like what happened to the people now? And I looked it up and the tragedy just continues as you hear about, you know, the people resettled to an island that turned out to not be an island that could support life. Wow. And they moved around and some people ended up in different places. And then even more recently, I think, um, just with the last presidency, there was a bunch of money that was, like, tied up that was supposed to go to the people and that got released to them and then was kind of squandered by, like, the leader of the people. Oh. And so, the actual, most of the people from the island didn't, didn't an, actually end up with any of it. And so, it's, yeah, it's just a sad situation uh, all around when, you know, they had such a beautiful life yeah, on the atoll at one time. And the atoll is so.
0: now completely uninhabitable, correct?
3: People, tourists have gone back more recently for, for a while. Like the original inhabitants, they, government told them they could go back, but then they discovered, oh no, like the wildlife, the fish, like everything is still, um, too much tainted. You're going to get sick. Um, but I think now people are starting to, um, at least go back and visit, Mm. But I don't know. Like, we, you know, it was an experiment. I don't know that we fully know. We really don't know until yet. later, right? Like, what the impacts still are.
0: Mm-hmm. And how that environmental yeah. impact will, even when the things do come back, will they be mm-hmm. mutated? Will they have adapted in ways that are adverse for us? Mm-hmm. So, oh, what a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Are you glad you read um, it, though?
3: I am. It's one of those books where I'm really glad I read it because I didn't know that this happened. And I'm really glad Mm -hmm. to have known that it happened. I think this kind of history is important to realize. You know, it's not really talked about nowadays.
0: It's a little bit like even Holocaust literature is becoming less Mm -hmm. and less talked about. And we're something we just ignore or sweep under the rug. And sometimes you, you have to read some of these stories to understand and, and be appropriately mortified and angry and devastated.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And to, think i think it's interesting for me to think about too like these various atrocities that have happened over the years and which ones have been kind of like even just apologized for or like some sort of um attempts to like make restitution for what happened like in some cases it happens in some cases it doesn't in some cases the stories are to- still told and in some cases they're not and it's just
0: interesting yeah. Yeah. And this is it's so interesting. About a week ago, one of our listeners sent to me an article that she thought that we would all find very, very compelling, and I shared it with you ladies, and I will put it in the show notes about the need for historical fiction, that we must read more historical fiction, because while it is important to read history and know true facts as they as they tell the story, we really are formed by story, and so historical fiction allows us to enter into the facts in a way that is more alive sometimes and more um, memorable and more influential on our own thinking and formation, how critically important historical fiction is, and especially for things that we are beginning to lose our memory of. So we, we talk, the four of us talk about this all the time, there's so little out there about World War One that's appropriate for our children. And we're working really hard, the four of us, to find more World War I books and, and bring them center forward. And there's a lot of other wars like that, a lot of other incidents like that, that we really need to do a better job of chasing and putting, I think that's one of the reasons why we all love historical fiction and picture book biographies for the same reason, right? They allow us to enter into the person's life in a more engaging way. And um, the need to share more of those kinds of stories. So that article in The Federalist, we will link it. Um, I don't know how it works, if you have to have a subscription or not, but we were able to read it with no issue. And so we'll link it and hope that it be, it's able to stay up so that you can read it as well. I think that's really thought-provoking really quick, though, Sarah, what you were saying, um, both Sarah's, about
2: just the importance of historical fiction and that we're losing our memories of some of these events. Yeah, And I was at an event with my daughter this last week. Over the summer, she had applied for and was able to attend Girls' State. I went to which... Girls'
0: State and oh, Girls' Nation. Wow. wow. Yeah, I know. Well, I was the I Supreme Court didn't... Justice.
2: Oh, my <laughs> gosh. You're amazing. Not really. <laughs> but anyway, Girls' Nation. Well, State. I, didn't, I didn't even really know what it was. Mm-hmm. I had not heard of it
1: before. Mm-hmm. Judd remembers hearing about it when he was in high school. Sure. I remember my mom saying that she went to that when she was in high school really mm-hmm. in Oregon it must have been
0: right when it was starting
1: maybe fifty fifties, 50s early 50s
0: so we went to an
2: event the other night yeah. so there's the American Legion and then there's the auxiliary which the is women um the women mm-hmm. yes so Kira had earned or won a scholarship through the auxiliary to go but then after she went they had asked her to come to present yeah. about what she had experienced and they had two girls and three young men From kind of like our county area. It's a little bit bigger than our county, but from that, from the area. But one of the things they did is they said, would anyone under the age of 22 please stand up? And they just commented that anyone under the age of 22 had not been born when 9-11 occurred. Right. And so they did not have an actual personal memory of Mm -hmm. 9-11. I'm going to get a little weepy (laughs) since we're just right after 9-11 here. Right. And it was just so they they said, go speak to anyone who's older than you and find out their story, like what they remembered and how it affected them and what they know of it. It was just so thought provoking to think about that is now a story that lives in the hearts and minds of all of us as moms. Absolutely. And our parents and whatnot and and people a little bit younger than us, but there's now an entire generation who that is not a personal story for them. Right. And so what do we do to keep those stories alive? And I just, I, it really resonated with me as I came home, just thinking about those events and how we, how we can continue to share those with the, the next generations right. and the impact they had and what we do with those stories moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So historical fiction is really important.
1: So important. I wanted to add one yeah. thing that's kind of jumping the gun on my books, but um, Tanya and I have mentioned this in different discussions about reading The Walking Drum again, Louis L'Amour book. And Mm -hmm. I had read it like 40 years ago, at least. I don't even think I was married yet, but I just remember being fascinated by the history. And then, particularly struck by what the author's note says, he said, one of the best means of introduction to any history is the historical novel. And that Mm. has stayed with me for over 40 years because I went, yeah, that's right, because I've Mm -hmm. learned way more history from my reading of historical novels since I got out of high school than I did the whole time I was in. Right. Right. Well,
0: and isn't this exactly what mythology is? It's historical fiction. Granted, it's highly fiction, right? It's not real. But it is a people's attempt to tell their story, but to tell their story in a personified way.
1: Right. Through fables and legends all the way up through from ancient Greeks to now. Yeah.
0: And for some reason, we think that we're too enlightened for that now. We just need facts. Just the facts. That's because
1: we haven't been reading the stories.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) So this is going to be really circular
2: because I know we're going to come back to Sarah Kim. But this whole idea of historical (laughs) fiction and the impact that stories have ties in also to my book. And I'm just going to (laughs) share a little quote. And just
0: wait. Our readers need to know that we do not talk to each other about what we're reading. On purpose, so right, right, like that. We do not. This is always a surprise.
2: <laughs> so I want to come. We're going to come back to it. But I found a book at the thrift store called "The Way of the Storyteller" <gasps> by Ruth Sawyer, mm. and it says a great storyteller shares her rich experience and joy in her art and tells eleven of her best love stories. So this was a case in which I didn't have a plan to read this book. This book had a plan to be read.
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so,
2: And there's just this quote that just ties in so beautifully to what we're saying, where she says, wisely says the philosopher in James Stevens's The Crock of Gold, quote, I have learned that the head does not hear anything until the heart has listened. And what the heart knows today, the head will understand tomorrow.
0: Oh, and beautiful. this is the importance
2: of story, living stories first, right. heart right. before head. Aww. I know. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so beautiful. so beautiful. And we'll go into it more because, like, I have it. Like, I see all your tags. Look at you guys, yeah. all the tabs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: oh, oh, beautiful. Well, so, Sarah, the summation is that you enjoyed As much as you can enjoy a depressing book, you enjoyed the bomb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's historical fiction. Yeah, it definitely
3: personalized the story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And are you going to have
0: Kwanu read that one, given the content considerations? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Because I went and bought it. (laughs) So it's on my shelf waiting for your final verdict before I ask Jack and Michael to read it. So thank you.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So... Maybe give them a little heads up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: So, what else are you reading?
3: Okay, so the other book I read um, was recommended by Marlene Peterson, who uh, founded the Well Educated mm-hmm. Heart, another one of our partner guides. And this one is called A Little Tiger in the Chinese Night. Oh, it's an autobiography, but it because it's written for children, I think it has that same impact mm-hmm. as historical fiction because it's written. As a story, it's not like a textbook mm-hmm. history, just the facts. It's it's told as his story, and um, and he's an artist, and so it's illustrated throughout with his drawings. Aww. And it's basically his life growing up in China. You know, he lived there before Mao and then was a young adult living under Mao and communism until eventually he moved to Canada, I believe. Mm. i trying to remember. I read it a little bit ago. I think it was Canada and with his wife. And so just the story of what that was like written for children. I think it was fantastic introduction to what life under communism was wow. like. He was a student and, you know, like the work camps that he would have to go to and like the hard labor and the poverty and then his parents getting... Interrogated, having their house taken away, like just like all the kinds of things that um, you kind of hear about, but are again like are not really talked about. Right. We don't often hear very much about what communism was like in China when it first came under Mao. It right?
0: definitely feels like there's a veil around that.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this one was great. Um, I don't know how easy it is to find. I found a copy, a used copy. I don't think it's in print i think it's on internet archive though great yeah and then we said we wanted to experience jennifer nielsen's fantasy yeah so i started the audiobook of the false print no way no way
0: (laughs) wait so you did it because we've been talking about jennifer nielsen
3: yes and you said (laughs) We need, eventually we need to explore her fantasy. And then everybody's like, oh, we don't really like fantasy. And I was like, I love fantasy. I'll read it.
0: Well, okay. So I'm reacting like this, Sarah, because I, well, I'll talk about my books when I get to it. But I was like, oh, I'm on a book hangover. I don't have like anything to reach for. And I can't start this one yet because it'll be too soon. And I can't start that one yet. It'll be too soon. I'm like all right, mm-hmm. I'll try the false prince, yeah. <laughs> And then I tried it.
3: You went into it reluctantly. I was like,
0: yes, I'll check it out. Well, so I started it and I was like, uh, I don't care. Maybe I'll return it. And then mm. I, I was not having a great day. And then I started the next day. I'm like, this is really good. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? And how far are you?
3: I've only listened to the first three chapters, so I'm not that far at all. <laughs> but it really captivates you, I think, right it from does. the beginning. It's, um, the characters are really well um, described. Like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm, like, right in the story already and can picture what's happening. The main character is not very likable no, yet. but he, he's not. That point. So yeah. did you
0: ever read the Thief <laughs> books by Megan Whalen Turner? No. Okay, so... To me, Sage feels like Eugenides from the thief books, not very likable. And he's a thief (laughs) and Mm -hmm. right. He's the first, first chapter. He's stealing a roast, but he's stealing a roast to feed the orphans. Right. I mean, it's, he's not all bad, Mm -hmm. but he's not pleasant at all. (laughs) And yet I'm in chapter 19 and he has my heart now. So, (laughs) oh, too funny. What is
3: that other book? I think you didn't like it, Tanya, but Quanu really liked it. The other one where the main character, at least, starts out as a thief. Um, I hated that
2: book. Oh, yeah, it was the one where the guy, the boy, gets his eyes pecked out by Ria. Oh, yeah. yes, um, Peter Nimble. Oh yes, Peter Nimble and his fantastic eyes. Yeah. That's the one. I really hated it. Okay, <laughs> I I have really strong feelings and Quanu about loved it. What did? I can understand why people love it, and I can see why Quanu loved it. Because he does end up doing things that seem to be heroic. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel that that main character. Okay, it's been like five years since I read it, but.
3: You didn't feel like he grew in character. In I a didn't way feel that like anything boring. he did
2: yeah. was from the correct heart space. It was oh. always from a sense of self-preservation, a sense of selfishness. I never felt like he stepped into the place of what his role should be as the prince and future king of the kingdom so
0: you and so and you've not read the thief uh, by Wayland, mm-hmm. is that he said no i haven't read that you won't like it then because that that's what eugenities <laughs> is like <laughs> okay and i'm
3: wondering if this book is going to be similar
0: uh it ha- as far as i am it it feels like the thief but it feels like a whole lot more heart and i love the thief to be to be clear i i love eugenides and i love the thief but it's twisted and it's weird and i have to review it because i don't necessarily recommend it because there's some stuff in there you know there's a lot of like confusion between he and ultimately his wife like what this is like the power struggle of all power struggles and it's weird but it's also really shakespearean so i don't know
3: and with Peter Nimble, I think Peter shows up in Sophie Choir. And by then, I think maybe you see a little bit more growth in his character. I know a lot of people really like that one even more.
2: Yeah. And I haven't read that one yet. Yeah. I just so didn't like Peter Nimble. That I was... didn't
3: like that one. He's telling oh. me.
0: <laughs> really?
2: I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Well, maybe
0: one day. Well, if he ever would like to yeah. write some book reviews for for Plumfield Kids, we would like to have his thoughts. That would be cool. It would be cool.
3: (laughs) I will mention it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. So it'll be very interesting to see what you and I both think of The False Prince next month. Yeah. So Now, remind me, have you read any of Jennifer Nielsen's other stuff? I can't remember. I haven't. It's my first. So I found it pleasantly shocking how wildly different the writing style is. Don't Mm -hmm. you feel like the writing style is very sophisticated and elegant? Like you said, the characters are really well drawn, but she writes in a kind of that fantasy medieval voice really nicely, I think. And um, I feel like sometimes, as much as we love her, sometimes in her historical fiction novels, I just feel like the 12-year-old girls can be really like girl whiny in some of her books. And I'm not Mm -hmm. getting that at all in this one. The writing is just different to me interesting okay so the thing i am reading right now is the false prince and we'll report back on that but i also wanted to tell you the other things i'm reading this month for my library book club we did a book club on the hundred cupboards books plural we did the three books not the door before but the three books on saturday and that was really a lot of fun i um I really love Nate Wilson's books for kids. I don't care for his adult books at all. Um, I could rant about that all day, but I won't. Um, I just, I really think that the cupboards are very creative and very inspired. And I know that they're an acquired taste. Not everybody likes them, but I think they're pretty, pretty amazing. And then I just had to go straight into the door before again. So I reread that one as well. And again, I love that in Nate Wilson's stories: the hero is not one character. The hero is always the family, or and the family might have a different shape or a different arrangement than you necessarily think of. But there is always a family of heroes. Usually, some of them are related by blood. Uh, there's a lot of brother sister teamwork in his various books, and I I think that his books really celebrate courage and virtue. And I love, I love that he is so well read, like we say about Gary D. Schmidt. He's so well read that all of the classics just pour out of him in his books, sometimes in more um, obvious ways than others. But you really just feel like his stories are drawing from a very deep well. So at, at minimum, his literature is good. Even if it's not your preferred style, there's, there's, a quality to his writing that can only be gained by having read the best stuff. And it's interesting because in in an interview that he did that we actually have linked on our website, he explains that in sixth grade, it was his punk year. He was coming home and complaining about everything. And he's, uh, I'm not sure he ever grew out of his punk year. But anyway, in his punk year, (laughs) his, his, his dinner table conversation was so obnoxious that his father forbade him. From being critical of a book, unless he could provide an adequate explanation of how he would have done it better, and so he began to read all of his books with critical analysis and then offer alternatives. Like he says in "Where the Red Fern Grows," he said, "I I would have just killed all the dogs." <laughs> That's one of the modifications I would have made. And I mean, anybody who's read Wilson knows the dog always dies, so don't fall in love with the dog. The dog will be dead by the end of the book. <laughs> um, but I thought. There's something to that. And if you have a middle schooler who's who's critically analyzing his books and figuring out how he would have written them differently, I think that that's a really interesting skill and definitely could f- encourage creative writing. And I think it's a question I want to use in all of my book clubs with teens going forward. How would you redraw this character? Or which scenes do you not like? Tell me how you would rewrite them or w- whatever that is. I think the idea of how do we own this story and and twist it, I think that that's um, yeah that is evidence of good reading and it's a good exercise for the brain. So, mm-hmm. also, I have continued because Diane and I are reading a lot of Gary D. Schmidt. We're continuing to read all the way through all of his children's books. We won't review all of them on our website because some of them, we just um but either found that they were harder harder to get copies of or we just didn't have the same excitement about that particular book so some of them were just letting them go by but i'm really enjoying some of his picture books sarah we know that you read almost time and it's a sweet book i read um uh, yeah. long walk on a
3: short day. day i read that one too long walk yeah. on a short
0: day i think sarah yeah you mentioned that one as well that is yeah. so beautiful it's I think that one's super, super well. Done. Perfect for Christmas time. Yes. Or even like yeah. in the spring. I don't know, here in, in Wisconsin in the spring, mm. that would be like a perfect March book. And I read his Sojourner Truth book, So Tall Within. Wow. Talk about a difference in voice and style. To me, it read more like um more like a Homeric epic. You know, if it it was like epic poetry and for him to write in the voice of a Black American woman, a slave, it, it was, I thought he adopted that voice uh, very well. It, it it was, I really, really enjoyed that story as much as you can enjoy a terribly sad story. But I enjoyed watching how he processes her ideas and expresses her. Uh, Diane and I, Diane read it as well. And Diane and I were remarking that the illustration, however, is both brilliant, but also not necessarily appropriate for the youngest readers. Mom, you should preview it first, because the illustration has a lot of emotion in it. It can be suggestively graphic in a way, um, but extremely compelling, extremely well done. And If you're doing a study on Sojourner Truth, or you're doing a study on the Underground Railroad or slavery, this could be a really, I think, essential book to do. It's my sense though that this book is probably well suited for 10 and 12 year olds, not six year olds. And then finally, I just have something fun. And I could I didn't know if I'd be able to talk about it. So I'm actually glad that our recording got delayed because now I can talk about it because SD Smith sent out the email to everybody today. So we have had the great blessing of pre reading Sam's books before they come out. And we pre read his newest book. It's hilarious. Moms of boys, you are going to want this book. It is so goofy and silly and ridiculous, and it is every bad dad joke ever tied together into one story. And I'm telling you this so that now I can tell you the title and you will understand. It is not like an epic story. This is not a hero's story. (laughs) The name of the book is Mooses with Bazookas and Other Tales That No Child Should Read. (laughs) it's it's ridiculous and but it's also it's creative and it's fun and of all of Sam's books my children have never written him a note they've just never done that Jack can't get this one out of his head and the illustration in it is hilarious as well and so Jack actually drew him a picture and wrote him a letter. All in the voice of the main (laughs) character. So we're sending that in the mail to Sam. (laughs) I'm sad that of all the books we've read this year, the book that Jack needed to write the author on was Mooses with Bazookas. But, you know.
1: (laughs) Well, he just happened to be at the age at the right time for that.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know half of my library patrons are going to be lining up to check this book out because they, I have that set of middle school and elementary school boys. (laughs) And so I just warned their moms in advance. the book was out and they should go buy it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So those are my books. I I've read a ton, but I don't have a lot of stories to tell beyond that.
3: Your talk about Gary Schmidt reminded me that I actually read the Wednesday war. Oh, that's right. Finally.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what are your thoughts? And it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I won't say too much about it because we've talked about it before, but, and you have a whole book club about it, but yeah, You're, it's you're glad.
0: <laughs> and yeah. so then next month we are all reading together just like that. And so I'm so glad you will have Wednesday words in you before you get to just yeah. like that. I think that'll be great.
3: That's what I wanted. I thought I, I need to stop reading these completely out of the order that you recommend.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. You rebel. <laughs> well, like, I do think that something, even though you could read mm. just like that without having read Wednesday Wars, something would be seriously lacking your sympathy for Marilee. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Is she the main character in Just Like This? Yes. That? Okay.
0: Yes. So something, yeah. and this is, I, I feel like we have to warn because people keep saying to me, oh, I reach for just like that and I'm so angry. I'm like, we warned you. We warned you. So we're going to warn again. <laughs> Mamas, when you get to just like that, brace for impact in the first paragraph. It's the first paragraph and something horribly tragic happens. Um, and then this is Marilyn's story about what happened just like that. So, yeah. Well, um,
2: I was sharing with you that I was listening to the audio sample on audible mm-hmm. and it opens with the very first paragraph and I was dumbfounded <laughs> yes. because I wasn't expecting to hear that that yes yes and not every audiobook starts at the beginning sometimes they just start randomly in the middle right so so I don't you know who chooses these things I don't know I just thought oh okay I, and I think Okay, and I think
3: I know what happened, even though none of you have spoiled it for me. But I'm, I can guess
2: now. (laughs) I will read it. (laughs) So just know there's spoilers in the audio, the audible sample as well, right?
0: And know that, like the other books, Okay, so specifically, like okay, for now, where we say that that is not for the youngest readers. I have patrons who did Wednesday Wars as a family with their little kids and their little kids are hilarious. Oh, that I do have a fun story. So we had a parent teen book club this summer, uh, we had a parenting book club here on Friday night around the campfire and we had, we had six families and all the little kids were inside playing where all the big kids and parents were outside doing Frankenstein. And my dog did something stupid, which Sam does. And Jack says, you stone. And this six-year-old says, you block, you stone, you worse than senseless thing. <laughs> And some of the other kids sort of looked a little confused, so I thought it was hilarious and so endearing that a whole family can have this whole Shakespearean culture because of Wednesday Wars. But the caution that we had for OK For Now definitely applies to Just Like That as well. But if families are looking for other Gary D. Schmidt books that they can do together, um Hercules Beal is, is hard, but it's only like Wednesday Wars hard. So Hercules Beale would be great, and that's the brand new one. And also, um, pay attention, Carter Jones, super fun and excellent, and a cup about at the same level as Wednesday Wars. Since we're on Gary D. Schmidt, let's go to Diane next.
1: I don't think I read any Gary D. Schmidt that we haven't already talked about, but I did finally get around to writing my review of, of orbiting Jupiter, and that's one that I would just say, Please read that before you hand that to a child of the age that we've been recommending Gary D. Schmidt to. So he writes yeah. for 13 and 14-year-old boys, typically, and most of his books are fine for that. But this one's really, really hard. Some some bad things happen that certain 13-year-old and 14-year-old boys would appreciate and say, hey, yeah, that that's my life. But a lot of kids we know... Are not going to be the same way. And uh, it's not going to, it isn't, he's not trying to scar anyone. He's trying to right. do like he says he needs to tell kids that life is messy. Life is messier yes. for some than others. Yes. And then some kids that aren't ready for that level of messiness.
0: There are a lot of trigger warnings associated with this book. And so I think that's what you're getting at is moms, this one hits a lot of buttons Mm -hmm. and buttons on a wide variety of scale, because we're talking about, we're talking about kids who are coming up in less than ideal circumstances Mm -hmm. and in circumstances
1: that are much worse than Doug Swiatek's. And it's never graphic. He doesn't do that. He's, he's not gratuitous about it. He just implies a lot of the things, but when the kids have questions, and they, yeah. if they don't ask, sometimes that's worse. If they sit there pondering, what what did that mean that they did? How did this happen? Um, it, that might be worse than just being told.
0: Yeah, and and that's also a little bit of the warning for just like that. In both orbiting Jupiter and just like that, violence against a hard not kid it plays a central part. But also in orbiting Jupiter, we also have teen pregnancy and some other terrible abuse situations mm-hmm. that, as you say so beautifully in your review, now that I remember that I actually read the review, um, This just because this is a hard book doesn't mean it isn't a beautiful book, but it is not going to be ideal for your average 12 to 14 year old.
1: Right. And even though you could, there's hope in the end, there's a lot of love and second chances, it's still tragic for some and it'll be painful. Yeah. So,
0: you wrote orbiting Jupiter. Yes. What did you read this month?
1: Well, I have another caution that I think is relevant because we've been talking a lot about Anne Rinaldi.
0: Did you read another book that so we don't have to?
1: Well, <laughs> you can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> because Sarah's been talking so much about Anne Rinaldi and how good she is and you were now, have have you read? How many have you read besides A Break with Charity? I've only read one, but Tanya's read one. Oh, okay. And we both write. Some, Tanya,
0: did you read one or more than one? I just read the one. Which one did you read? I read
2: Hang a Thousand Trees with Ribbons: The Story of Phyllis Wheatley, mm. and I loved it.
1: Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll just go see what she's written. You know, what else? Maybe I can read a different one. And I was scrolling through what ones were available and seeing what the main topic was. And one of them was on the Hatfields and the McCoys, which I'm a Hatfield. So that always, you know, (laughs) that's interesting. And Mm -hmm. she wrote this really well, I think, as far as the story goes from all the other things I've written and the, and there's a really good movie with Kevin Costner, if you can even call it good. (laughs) The story is just so bad. I mean, it's so horrible because you have this feud that's, violent and you know these people are neighbors but they go they kill each other back and forth um the story is Mm -hmm. told by the a daughter of the mccoys and i forget now how many kids they had but like 15 or something like that so she's i think she's the youngest and so she's seeing all of this and and um she knows a little bit of the background of the feud but wasn't there and she's watching family members die and and bad things happen Mm. and i just thought this is not i would not recommend this to the young group that you typically talk about with some of these other historical fiction stories it's there's just too much there's killing parents being killed brothers and sisters being killed just back and forth all the time um and children born out of wedlock and really bad decisions oh. that you know have repercussions down through the generations and it doesn't end well you the the feud just kind of ran out so mm. there's no happy mm-hmm. ending where ta-da the family members finally get together and they shake hands and let's all be friends now it's just like the the people who were the most angry died and so they the other people just got tired of the fight
2: well let me just interject dan for just a second because i love what you're saying that your qualification here for both of these books that you're giving warnings on has to, seems to be surrounded by sometimes like who they're marketed for versus who they would actually be best suited for. Right. So I think what we're seeing for a lot of these is that they're marketed to the middle grade reader ages 10 to 12. And that doesn't seem in a lot of ways to be the appropriate age. Maybe the 14-plus crowd right. is what this is really more well-suited to, like a teenager. You're Because you're looking at the Hatfields and the McCoys, and this is just Shakespeare.
0: <laughs> right? This is, Romeo, guess, and yeah, this is Rome, Romeo and Juliet. That's what I was going to say, too, which ends terribly. 100%, which ends terribly. <laughs> right. And it's it's fear, and it's
2: anger, and it's hate, and it's revenge. And it just shows you that once you get in the cycle, if you feed those emotions mm-hmm. and you, you feed anger mm-hmm. – and you feed revenge, mm-hmm. then you just get in this cycle and just goes back and forth. And unfortunately, you have this real world example of seeing that in action. Mm. That is really heart wrenching and heartbreaking if you think about it, right? How it destroys these families. right? But it's
0: not really meant for the 10 year olds. No. No. But it's kind of marketed to the 10 to 12 year olds, which is so odd. Especially if there's no heroes in it. I mean, I don't have a problem with books necessarily retelling a historical situation in which a lot of people died. If all the heroes are heroes, they behave like heroes and they are center stage, then our 10-year-old can grapple with that. But this sort of like moral abyss, that is really hard for the 10 to 12-year-old.
2: Yeah. And I think what's complicated is the reading level. Mm -hmm. So what I see on a lot of these reading levels is you have a Lexile reading level or an AR reading level. That puts it also more in that fourth to sixth grade level. And I think one of the things that parents need to consider is that reading level is not the same thing as like age appropriate level. So yes, it may be written where it's accessible to a child that can read at that level. That does not mean it's a story that a child should be reading at that age. Correct. And I think we have to be talking about that and remembering that because we're talking about a lot of books that we really love and they're just not right for the 10 to 12 year olds, Right.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: Because it's hard to know. I don't know necessarily that this is marketed to the wrong audience. It's just that like with Schmidt, when you get – you're used to the fact that 13 or 14-year-old would be able to read this story and be fine. And then all of a sudden there's one Mm -hmm. that's not – I don't know that they are specifically pushing it on 12 to 13-year-old kids. It's just that we think this is okay, this is okay, this is okay, that must be okay. I don't know that the author said that.
2: So the reason I feel like it's marketed towards the 10 to 12-year-old is typically if you go to Amazon, which is where I think 90% of people purchase books from, right. they have a reading age. And this book Um, I believe you're talking about the Coffin Quilt, the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Oh, yes. I'm
1: sorry. I didn't say the title. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) The reading age is 10 to 12 years old and the Lexile measure is 590L, which is a very low reading level. It's a fourth to sixth grade reading level. So it would be very easy for a mom to say, well, I don't know anything about this book, but the publisher has put the reading age at 10 to 12. It's been graded at a 590L Luxile level. That's right where my child is at. Or fourth to sixth grade. And so I think this would be a, probably a good fit for them. Or
0: classroom teachers are buying it for their bookshelf based upon the ratings. Absolutely. Or to read as part of a classroom
2: study or whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, mm. then the other I little... Feel like those those things tend to be more for institutional use than they do for parent parental use but then the parents are saying well this is what the back of the books say from the other books that my kids have brought home so that's what i should be looking for
1: the other right. element is that the narrator is very young so here's the story oh. in in well, the eyes of like an eight-year-old i think when it starts and so she's seeing these horrible things and you could think that it may well maybe it's like to kill a mockingbird and um Something like that. Mm. But she's seeing horrible things and telling it, though, in a child's vocabulary and not just a child, but, you know, backwoods, West Virginia child's vocabulary. Uh, So she doesn't sound stupid, but it is a lower level reading because it's very simple language.
0: See, 10 years ago, I used to always say, I like to look at the age of the protagonist or the age of the narrator, and that's usually a good sense as to the age of the ideal reader. But something has changed, and that is not the case anymore. I think that that is probably true of old English classics, and it is not true of modern American books that are being offered today. It's something I think maybe I'd actually like to look into a little bit. When did it change and why? What is the agenda behind changing it? I don't think Gary D. Schmidt has an agenda. I think that in Orbiting Jupiter, he isn't talking to all 13-year-olds. He's talking to the particular boys that he had experience with to make them feel seen and represented. But that does not mean that his 13-year-old book is good for all 13-year-olds. I don't think that Gary D. Schmidt intends to scandalize or hurt, but I do question other authors. Why are we or why are their publishers pushing them to write content that's too mature for the age that it's targeted at?
3: Yeah, so this is where parents really can know their child and why we try to provide as much information as we can. So you know if your child can handle it or not, or even if they'll be interested in it or not. It's not just like reading level and maturity level, but also interest level. Like there's some topics that your child just might not be ready for like might not be able to appreciate as much Mm. or like to really get the depth of the story until they're older
0: might be different for each child in your home you might have one child who's perfectly capable of doing combat nurses the landmark book at 10 and another one who says no that's too sensitive for me i can't handle that till i'm 14 so it it, this is where we know that moms cannot pre-read everything and that's part of why between BiblioGuides and Plumfield, we're trying so hard to give moms as many tools as possible. This is not about self-promotion moms. This is just about caring about you and caring about what you're trying to accomplish for your kids and trying to make sure that you can give your kids the best possible fit, give you as much information to make that happen for you so that you're not dealing with a lot of, what? I didn't know that was in there. You have a
2: lifetime of reading ahead of your child Mm -hmm. and you have a lifetime of a relationship with your child it doesn't end when they turn 18 and move away from home yeah you get to transition to a new beautiful space of an adult relationship where you can continue to read and discuss ideas that doesn't have to end Mm -mm. and i just think rather than coming from the scarcity mindset too of like we've got to get all this reading in and i think we can there is a balance between preserving innocence yes for a while. So when Gary DeSchmidt wrote Orbiting Jupiter, that was for children whose innocence hadn't been preserved and they're living a life that maybe no child should have to Amen. live at that age. Amen. Yeah. Yes. And that's great because those children need to be met. That does not mean that every child should then have to experience what those children are experiencing at that age. Right. We can preserve their innocence and we should. Right? There's a time and a place to expose them to the the nuance of life and the difficulties of the world appropriately and and you don't have to rush that and you don't have to do it sooner than they're ready for. Like give them that stronger foundation first. Give them the fairy tales. Give them the folk tales. Give them the hero tales. Yes. Give them the historical tales and legends. Give them historical fiction appropriately. Right? Let them grow into these things and mature into these things and don't rush it because there is enough time. And
0: I just think that's so true. I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I see in the library is I'll have a family come in with four or five kids and one child is in particular is a voracious reader and mom cannot keep up with this child but they're 11 and they are reading at the level of a 20 year old they're reading with that level of comprehension and intelligence and their capability is there but they cannot read 20-year-old's content. We are not giving an 11-year-old the Space Trilogy. That's not happening. And so I have found that this is one reason why I'm a passionate advocate for books from the Stratemeyer Syndicate in their older printings. I think that things like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys or I think Cherry Ames, which is not Stratemeyer Syndicate, um, Cherry Ames or Happy Hollisters, which is, are beautiful options to fill in the cracks when you've got this reader who's just needing to read something. I have one girl who comes in and and she always picks up two Cherry Ames and then a a whole tote of other books that are more challenging or more engrossing. But she just, those are Cherry Ames books. She's just going back to them. They're comfortable. They're wonderful. they are wholesome. They're good for her. It's not trash, but it's preserving her innocence. And I gave her an Anne Rinaldi book that I had not previewed because it had been on a list and she gave it back to me and said, I didn't like it and I think you should remove it from your shelves or at least put it up high because this one is older. And so I'm like, Ooh. interesting. So I've actually taken the Anne Rinaldi books now and flagged them all for myself that I won't check them out till one of us has read them.
1: Okay, mm. there you go. I did, did some more yeah. work for you that you don't have to do.
0: <laughs>
2: Thank you, Diane.
1: <laughs>
2: because it does sound like the, the book is well done and you do like it. You just like it with a caveat of doing it for the right age. Is that what I, you're saying? I think
1: she told the story as well as anyone could with the few details there are. And she told it in a very personable mm-hmm. way. So you do you do have sympathy for this character. She's seeing a lot of things that are happening in this, and tells it really well. Um, mm-hmm. But I think to go along with what you were saying about just age and ability, you get to the end of this and there was no one to like. Ugh. And I don't think that those are good oh, stories hard. for younger yeah. kids just because they need to get to the no. end and go, well, at least – so and so did the right thing or i can see that this person is going to be rewarded for their good behavior and probably they're going to do well there's there's no there's no hope and there's no hero
0: even adults need hope and hero in a book mm-hmm. i in my tuesday night classics club Anna Karenina was so hard because there's almost nobody likable in it. It, There is. Levin is really fantastic. But you have to work really hard to even read Levin with all of the nonsense going on around him. And I remember we've talked about this a lot that Kristen Lavinstrawner, gosh, we all hate her in the first third of the book. We just hate her the first novel. She's horrendously bad. Mm-hmm. And we have to look at Lawrence. We know that Lavrance is the hero. We know and then I keep warning them and telling them Simone is the is the hero next and, and and Kristen comes around, but it takes a long time and grown adults don't even like to sit and spend a lot of time in these sort of morally bankrupt books not that the book is bankrupt but that the the characters are all morally bankrupt or complicated
2: the one caveat i would have though with this particular story is that i think one of the greatest gifts that we can learn is that we can learn the power of forgiveness and why we forgive and why we let go of having been wronged by someone Mm, a need for forgiveness the need for forgiveness. And there are cases clearly where if you hold on to hate and revenge and the fact that you've been wronged and these other people have done these horrible things, the outcome is tragic. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I think it's a good message actually. Like sometimes, sometimes people choose to hold on to hurt and anger and they refuse to provide forgiveness, which isn't even really forgiveness, isn't for the other person. No, exactly. Forgiveness is for the individual who's been harmed. That's who forgiveness is for. It allows for healing. And it allows for healing. Right. And it's the savior's problem. To work out the math. To work out the (laughs) math and all the mess. And I, there's a part of me that really loves, like, especially in like the Shakespeare tragedies where maybe that main character, there isn't, it's just tragic. And I think there is something to be learned in that because you get to Live through a story in which you get to see if you continue down this road, what a possible outcome of those decisions might be, yeah. and maybe make a different decision. Yeah. And so that's why I do kind of like these stories. Like, even though in this one there was no different change, it's fascinating to me because it's not a fictional story. Right. It's real. It's real. And these people just hung on till death. That is tragic, tragic. in my mind.
1: Mm-hmm. One element of the tragedy is that this, the basis of the feud was the Civil War. These were, you know, families who were who were should have both been on the same side, which would have been the South. And one son from one of the families fought for the other side. And the so the other oh. family ended killed him because oh. of that. And and that they think is the basis for the tragedy. So I think that is something that is valuable to know that this is a real mm-hmm. thing. This is a real conflict mm-hmm. Be- that, you know, you talk about the civil war being brother against brother. We need to know mm-hmm. that that is still ongoing as well, or that that kind of a thing. Sometimes it is only death that will get rid of that kind of hatred because the kids are going, I don't understand what the big deal is here, but to the parents, to the people who started it, there is no resolving that issue.
0: Well, especially when death is involved. And then once, once blood starts to spill, it's very hard to get past that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you think about Corey Ten Boom's capacity to forgive the concentration camp guards, that is, I mean, it was healing for her. That was her takeaway. It was healing for her. Grace was given to her so that she could do this because it healed her. And it broke the guard and then allowed him to be healed. It's really really hard though when there's retaliatory, right? It's back and forth. And so the bodies are piling up like every mob war there ever has been. The 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 long arm of complaints against each other. It's not forgiving one death, you're forgiving another death and how many deaths until you're it's insane,
1: total madness. Speaking of which, I'm reading Macbeth with my class. <gasps> so talking of spilling blood over and over again and you killed somebody and so now you got to kill somebody else to cover that up um but one of the statements at the beginning of a scene somebody says you know how's the night going and one of the other person says the moon is down i have not heard the clock and this time when i read that i went oh i remember john steinbeck has a book called the moon is down i wonder what that's about because I, I have a, there's a lot of John Steinbeck that I love, but there's a lot of it that I don't recommend to other people. And some of it that I don't like myself. Right. This one is a really short like novella. Uh, mm-hmm. It has chapters, but it's almost short story length. And it was written in 1942. And I'm going to read you the first little bit from it. By 1045, it was all over. The town was occupied, the defenders defeated, and the war finished the invader had prepared for this campaign as carefully as he had for larger ones and then it goes on to tell that the how all the a lot of the people who could have defended the town had been out of town but the story is there's no the town is not um identified the invaders are not identified but it's much like the stories uh, that we have been reading the world war 2 stories where the the nazis come in and and take over a town in Holland or something like that. But the point is they these, the invaders come in and they go do everything by the book. We do this to the people, we treat them this way, we, we keep the mayor in place so that he can he'll be the one who seems to be dispensing justice and the people will stay calm and so we just know all of the steps to take to make this work out right. Well the mayor says, What if the people don't want to be safe? Oh. And so the whole rest of the story is that the invaders insist on doing everything by the book, but the people won't knuckle under and they keep just doing stuff that's got the invaders so jumpy and lonely mm-hmm. and frustrated mm-hmm. that they are actually the ones who are not free anymore. Huh. And it's just, it's really interesting because he doesn't try to tell a real story or a, it's not really a historical novel he just has that one theme that go ahead and try and keep these people oppressed and see how that works out for you
0: see now that reminds me of a jennifer nielsen book that tanya and i think is the best one of all of hers resistance and the whole point in the ghetto was it was to make the oppressors as miserable as possible Mm -hmm. not only were they smuggling medicine in and babies out They were also causing as much chaos and disruption as possible Uh to make it not worth the enemy's while to take care of them. And they're
1: just, they're at a loss because even though they kill people every time there's some resistance, people do it anyway. And they just can't understand why are you, why are you, you know, we're going to kill some people. If you kill one of our people, we're going to kill 10 of yours. Yeah, we know. You're still not safe. Mm
0: hmm so a recurring theme that i keep hearing in books that i have been reading which is i'm going to die standing on my feet
1: mm-hmm.
0: yep. not gonna lay down mm-hmm. die standing on my feet fighting back
1: i'm gonna bring up one more book because every once in a while uh seems like tanya and i kind of get into talking about world war one and um <laughs> i belong i'm
0: excited about this one
1: Oh, okay i belong to the history book club which i've been like for 25 years or something where you used to get the little cards in the mail. So send this back that says you don't want anything or you're going to get them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So
1: they quit doing that a long time ago. And I just get uh, something in my email that I have to go and say, I don't want them, but I always look through all the books to see if there's any good ideas. And I had never heard of Jennifer Chabarini is how I think it is probably pronounced. This one's called switchboard soldiers. And it's about women in World War One who were recruited to go over to France after the United States entered the war. And they had to be really good at switchboards. And they also had to be fluent in French to be able to read and understand mm-hmm. it. Um, and... At the beginning, I haven't gotten very far in there, but what she's doing is bringing together three young women from different parts of the country who have those qualifications for various reasons, family connections, two of the families, like their parents are immigrants from France or Belgium. Um, And it's kind of, there's, um, I guess the attitude was, the men, the, the soldiers, they couldn't find soldiers who were good at switchboards because there's too many things going on at once. But these women (laughs) had learned to do, you know, a hundred things at a time and do it with a smile on their face. You have to be able to hear the smile in your voice is the way the phone company had trained them. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. I'm really interested in what the rest of the story will be because then they they go over to the war. And then I'm sure there will be a lot of real historical situations happening. She took the characters are fictionalized, but she took them from stories pieces of stories of actual women who did this so i like that
0: i can't wait to hear more about that one because we do need to do more world war one reading Mm -hmm. and so if this one is is good and appropriate for teens i'm going to be very excited to read it yes and it
2: sounds fascinating i just looked it up on amazon and there's quite a long description but one line says they were among the first women sworn into the u.s army under the articles of war the male soldiers they had replaced had needed one minute to connect each call. The switchboard soldiers could do it in 10 Mm -hmm. seconds. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. That sounds so Mm -hmm. good, Diane.
1: I I hope it is something (laughs) that we could say, yes, anyone could read this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that'd be Mm -hmm. great. (laughs) All right. So Tanya, what are you reading? I'm just
2: going to mostly focus on one book that I've been reading, but I want to just bring up really quickly I'm not on TikTok yeah. because TikTok. It's I tried weird. getting on there and it is so yeah. weird. We're too old Both for Sarah, it. Both Sarah, Kim, and I had got on and I had a daughter that was like, go look at the Empire State Buildings account. And it is odd. And so I am <laughs> very, clearly very too odd. It's so <laughs> odd. I'm too old. I clearly old. <laughs> <laughs> too old
0: This us. does not get <laughs> cute
2: for me. <laughs> no. But apparently, word on the street is Is that there is a TikTok trend to ask a male person in your life how often they think about the Roman Empire or ancient Rome? (laughs) So the trend is to ask, and that the typical response of most men is two to three times per week that they think about the Roman Empire. (laughs) And so my daughter um, asked her newlywed husband, so they're 22, and he was like, "Yeah, a couple times a week at least." And he's he reads a ton as well. So she asked her dad you know, my husband. And he said, for sure, two to three times a week at least. (laughs) And I'm thinking, really? (laughs) That's thought-provoking. To which then Judd told me, he's like, well, for example, I'm reading a ton of Marcus Aurelius and Seneca right now. And then I just got an earful of Seneca quotes, Marcus Aurelius quotes. And then every time we have a conversation over the last week, he's like, well, you know what Aurelius says in it? He says, blah, 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 (laughs) blah. And I'm like, okay. So I just think for a fun thing, Mm-hmm. We might need to consider like Roman Empire, maybe the listeners can go and think about how often they think about the Roman Empire because I thought that was a fascinating <laughs> question. and I guess <laughs> if you think about it, a lot of these ideas from ancient Rome do show up in our stories of today, both our um movies, our books, our daily conversation. I think we just don't don't like know in it. the walking drum oh, um prevalent it is like in he the walking was just drum. Talking about <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> I just love the walking drum. When we get to discussing The Walking Drum, there are some things that we'll want to discuss with moms. It is for older teenagers, okay. for sure. I love this book. I've read it a couple times, but the main character is like just a slight woman. There's a I girl share. in every port. But in oh. a way that I think is really, oh. but it's super endearing. Captain James T. Kirk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But not like, but you know, he's charming and you just like him. Right. Minus right. the mini skirts. Right. Anyway. <laughs> well, no the, the, the women are all unique and sometimes super amazing and powerful in their own right. And so it's anyway, it's thought provoking. <laughs> we'll get there when we talk about that book. So the book I mentioned at the beginning is called The Way of the Storyteller by Ruth Sawyer, who wrote adult books, she wrote children's books, she wrote roller skates, is one that many people have heard of. And it says a great storyteller shares her rich experience and joy in her art and then tells 11 of her best love stories. So it just caught my eye because it was Ruth Sawyer and I was just interested in what she had to say and I think the reason is that I've been thinking a lot about storytelling. Mm. And storytelling as being different from read aloud, yeah. and from just reading yeah. and I don't I think it's partly a yearning of my heart to have been living in a time when storytelling was more prevalent. You mean when people sat
0: around the fire and just shared stories? Yeah,
2: but where people were actually
0: skilled, like right. where there
2: were actually skilled storytellers. Right. Yes. Right.
0: And she talks
2: about that in the beginning of this book, where she says, Truly thrice blessed is a child who has experienced such art through the listening years. For these are the years a child can be so easily played on, when to be filled to the brimming means that the years ahead will never run dry. Now, I believe it is the easiest thing in the world to tell a story and the hardest to be a fine storyteller. Mm -hmm. And then she talks about how she had this Irish nursemaid growing up who was an amazing storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so her childhood was filled with true storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is what ignited her in probably becoming an author and her storytelling. And so this book is not about how to be a storyteller. Um, She says, let me see if I can find this other quote I wanted to share with you. This is no book on how to tell stories and what to tell. It is a call to go questing, an urge to follow the way of the storyteller as pilgrims followed the way of St. James in the Middle Ages, not for riches or knowledge or power, but that each might find, quote, something for which his soul had cried out. Mm. I believe it to be something that transcends method, technique, the hows and the whys. It is, in the main, spiritual experience which makes storytellers. So it was just so drawing to me and I've been thinking a lot too about, I feel like this is a book for mamas and sometimes don't we just need that? Yeah. Our own cup of tea, right? We need our own cup of tea, something mm-hmm. that's going to nourish our hearts. But also I think we're always trying to bring into our home, that culture yes. that makes to be ex- home feel alive, story filled and story formed. Right. And of course we hear love stories, right? Mm-hmm. That are reading life. Yeah. Um, So this is something that she said. She said, storytelling is a folk art. To approach it with the feelings and the ideas of an intellectual or a sophisticate is at once to drive it under the domination of mind and critical sense. All folk arts have grown out of the primal urge to give tongue to what has been seen, heard, experienced. They have been motivated by simple, direct folk emotions, by imagination. They have been shaped by folk wisdom. To bring a sophisticated attitude to a folk art is to jeopardize it. Or rather, it is to make it into something that it is not. To the unpracticed, unthinking public, there is no difference between dramatic reading, recitation, and storytelling. But to one who knows, dramatic reading and recitation belong to a comparatively modern and sophisticated age. Mm -hmm. And storytelling to one of the oldest traditional arts, having its roots in the beginnings of articulate expression, I think it is a common experience among storytellers of longstanding to have the millstones of dramatic reading and recitation hung about their necks and sometimes worse.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think that's interesting because in a Charlotte Mason education, education you'll have your children do recitation. Right. And I've often thought, like, what is that difference between a recitation or a dramatic reading or a memorization versus a storytelling? Like, what, what brings it to life? And here's what she says. I believe storytelling to be not only a folk art, but a living art. Okay. So I love the word living because how often do we talk about living ideas, yep. living, living history, living books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So she's going to call it a living art. And by that, I mean much. Music in all its forms is a living art and that it becomes reality only when it is played. Dancing is a living art for it lives only while you watch the movement, grace, interpretation of the dancer. So is it with storytelling. It lives only while the story is being told. True, child or adult can sometimes go to a book and read the story again for himself. A good and abiding thing to do, but not
0: the same thing. Because you bring yourself to the story. That's the point. Mm -hmm. And so every time you experience it, it's a different story. Yeah. Well, and I think she's talking about it's
2: your love of things she talks about how often a storyteller will say, I want to tell you a story that has had me laughing for ages. Yeah. Or I want to tell you a story because, right, they have this, um, they have some reason deep inside of them as to why they want to tell the story and they bring themselves to the story. So it's not just a memorization of it. It's not just a recitation of it. It's, it's yeah, it's truly them. And then I also love that she talks about, because we talk about Are we trying to force morals or ideas on our children? What what does that look like? And she said, I honestly believe no true artist ever put into concrete. I'm going to say this over again. I honestly believe no true artist ever put into concrete form a great and living idea with the primary impulse of educating humanity Mm -hmm. or building its character, one jot or one tittle to link moral purpose to any art is both absurd and sterile. In the past, it has been with a kind of horror that I watched eager and intelligent young minds being thumbscrewed under the belief that storytelling could not stand alone as an art, Hmm. that its reason for existence depended on some extraneous motive. Like many other, I have been stormed with protests about the use of fairy tales. Child psychologists have done their best to create havoc in the field of children's stories and literature, especially when they step in and dilute, remedy, or bar altogether that which has sprung living from the spiritual loins of the race or from the creative pen of those who knew the true nature of childhood far better than the psychologist.
1: I so just, love it's that. Like,
2: Damn. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so it's like another voice coming through. This was published originally in 1942. She did a revised edition in 1962. And at the end of the book, she gives 11 stories that she loves for storytelling that I was kind of skimming through but what I love here is just that it's another voice in a long line of storytellers and people who love children and educators confirming the need for living stories. Right. And I, it's such a hard idea to grasp. And I think if someone hasn't studied Charlotte Mason and you say living, they don't know what it books means. Or yeah, whatever, they don't mm. know, and it's hard to then express. Like, what's your 10 second pitch right. on a living book? It's it's difficult because it it's almost something more that you feel than that you can express. Right. Right. Like, you know, the impact of it, you know it when you've experienced yes. it and when you have felt it. And I think that's true of storytelling. And I just wish I guess my heart is just yearning for more storytelling because she talks about how she went and traveled the world listening to the best storytellers and kind of capturing stories and how each one was unique and different. And there isn't actually. A standard for what makes a great no storyteller? Formula, you, you,
0: nothing, no formula. Nothing. There's rubric. no formula. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and they're completely different, and they have a completely different essence right. to what makes them unique, but also what makes it great. Yeah, and I just want more of that in life. I want more of that, and I I feel like we find that in the stories we talk about here on our reading life, and the stories that we talk about in our podcasts and our book clubs. Right? It's just this richness and this depth that, like it's primal. Yeah, it is. It- and it's like it's like modernity. We're living superficially, and it's like wanting to go back to something that's more substantial.
0: Okay, I have something you're gonna love. Okay, so I read it in August. I still haven't reviewed it. This is the end of September. I still haven't reviewed it because I don't know how to review it. It's Gary D. Schmidt. <laughs> Shock, oh. <laughs> but it is. Um, It is Mara's stories. It's a little tiny book. It's a little square book. And it is the story of a woman in a concentration camp and how at night she would tell the story. Every night she would craft a new story to preserve life inside of the people in her bunk. And so... er it is, col- it is a collection of some of her stories. If I understand the preface and the dedication correctly, she survived the concentration camp, or one of the people who heard her stories survived the concentration camp, and Gary D. Schmidt had the grace to know them, and so was able to capture some of these stories. These And they might be her retellings of Bible stories, or the one that just, oh, it wrecks me. Every time I think about it is the story of this concert violin violinist who he, he was just wrecked to be in the concentration camp. And she, so this is one of Mara's stories. And so he he's wrecked to be there. And one of the men in uh, one of the, one of the other men in the bunkhouse recognized him and loved his music. But of course they can't make it. they have to be so quiet at night, right? Because the the guards would come in and so the man who recognized him tried to call out to him and, and befriend him. And he was, he, he was dead, dead in his heart. He, he couldn't, couldn't respond. And so the man uh, acts as if he is playing a violin and it had been his dream, his whole life to play a duet with this famous vi- violinist. And so he just starts playing the violin on his arm and it happened like a couple of nights in a row. And finally the violinist put his head up, pulled out his imaginary violin and they start playing music and they, they got the notes oh. right. And, and all of the men in the bunkhouse reported that they could hear the music. Oh my gosh. So then the Germans come in one day, somebody had tried to run away and they're going to shoot 10 men and they're going to take the violinist and the man wouldn't let his friend be taken and he ta- he pushes him back and steps in his place and he's killed mm-hmm. but the violinist lived and so at the end of every single concert for the rest of his life he would end with the final bars of that solo right well, I'm speechless. How do I review this book? <laughs> it is, oh. It's just the stories. They, some are Bible stories. Some are stories like that. And they're just, they were stories that were being told to keep people gripping to their humanity in the most inhumane place ever. So there's Gary D. Schmidt for you.
2: Well, there's the power of stories for story. you. Right? Yeah. We're living in a world where so many people are feeling lonely disconnected hopeless especially after covid i just children especially are feeling this way and i just think we need more stories we need to be reading more stories to our kids we need to practice storytelling yeah. teaching them to learn storytelling yeah. and to tell stories because it, those are they're really the answers and i think yeah.
1: if you follow um the kinds of stories that schmidt brings up like lizzie bright is completely different from wednesday wars and yes. Anson's way is a you know historical thing, and First Boy is a thriller, mm-hmm. but I think what he does differently than other people is that he sees people. He goes around, he has experiences, mm-hmm. and everywhere he goes, he sees people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. finds the stories because he's interested. Um, and, and I guess that's I just want to say that he he sees people. And a lot of people today do not see anyone else.
0: And, you know, when I was reading Sojourner Truth, his So Tall Within about Sojourner Truth, the, some of the language in it to me was a little jarring because it felt like, is this a political book? Is he like making a political statement? It, it it almost felt like he was coming out on a particular modern side of a of a modern issue. And I had to keep reminding myself, no, 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 no. He is telling Sojourner Truth's story. How that story is being interpreted today—that's that's not his issue. He's telling her story the way she would tell it. He is he is basing this off of that truth in that moment in time, without a whole lot of thought about does this have a political value to it or not. It's not a political book. It is a truth-telling book. <laughs> well, that's a good ending point I say because. So.
2: That just ties it all up. <laughs> I, anyway, I've just been kind of wowed by what she's saying in this book. Also, if anybody ends up deciding they want to read it, she does have a whole thing in here about if you're going to be a storyteller, you better not be a garbage one. <laughs> like, like you, like there's a whole thing about learn to control your breath
1: mm-hmm. and
2: learn to to modulate your voice because she said no one should have to sit through listening to a terrible storyteller. Like if you have a terrible voice, do something about it. <laughs> the storytelling of today seems to be self-centric. Yes. So it seems to be that storytellers and authors are telling their stories that they want to have validated and, truth. and confirmed. Oh, give
0: it up. And their truth.
2: <laughs> and that isn't what storytellers of the past did. And it just Mm-mm. feels like our whole shift in in this modern era is so centered on self. Yeah. And it's just, and I just feel like it's problematic, but I can't exactly articulate why.
1: But, well, because you're so um, interested in yourself, but no one else is. Because if everybody's interested in their self, they don't want to hear your story. They're sitting there waiting for you to shut up so that they can tell you theirs.
0: Also, it is anti Christian to be so self absorbed because when we worship ourselves, we have no room to worship He who is worthy of our worship. And so, stories of all their forms. Really shouldn't be about us. They should be about him and who he is in the lives of the other people that we are encountering, or the other story. You know, that's what storytelling should be: is capturing his truth as it's being lived by a whole host of wildly divergent people.
2: Well, and I think we should care if it truly is an art. We should care how that art affects another person and what it does to another person. Mm-hmm. So if it's if the point is to validate our own story. Mm-hmm. And feel like that, that is something that the, that the listener needs to hear with no concern for what we are doing to, to serve, like Gary D. Schmidt says, the listener. Yes. I feel like that's really problematic. And I once went and saw this artist who's become a famous sculptor here in Utah speak. And she says, artists must be responsible for their art. Yes. You are responsible for what it's going to do to someone else. And so she was showing art, like this modern art. And she's like, if it's crude and it's all these things, it does affect your audience in a specific way. Mm-hmm. And if it's not if it's not leading them towards betterment or towards
0: God or towards ideas, that is a problem. And you're responsible for it. And that is why they are called the transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty. They are in a trinity for a reason. You cannot have truth if it lacks beauty. And you cannot have beauty if it lacks truth. You can't have love that lacks truth and and so on and so forth. These things, they are so perfectly integrated and we need to respect.
1: Amen to all of that. Well, I'm going to say it again. This has been so much fun. Thanks, Tanya and Sarah. It's our favorite thing. I actually want to take a moment before we close to thank Tanya
0: and Sarah for the incredible Idea That they had last year. So those of you, you probably don't all know this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just tell a little secret right now. We have a nickname for Tanya. She is the magnificent idea machine. (laughs) And Tanya has a, a lot of really excellent ideas. And Tanya and Sarah working together have some really, really powerful ideas that have impacted us in meaningful ways. And they are the ones that got us onto the idea that we should talk to library ladies. And they specifically introduced us to the six library ladies. Well, except Kathleen, because we knew Kathleen. Um, but they specifically introduced us to the to those first library ladies that we interviewed last fall and began to know and love and care about and collaborate with. And the outgrowth of that is that my library is bursting. I have over 20 patrons and... Um, 5,000 books a very short space of time my life has changed tremendously but for the better and Diane is about to open her library she says it's going to be the softest opening that nobody will have ever even known happened Um, (laughs) but thanks to them and the beautiful friendship that they helped us to cultivate with these these really fantastic women we had the great joy of recording last week our first episode of a new series that is sort of the twin sister to this series. So this series is Our Reading Life. And our new episode, which will actually air tomorrow from when we're recording, it'll have already aired by the time that you all hear this, is Our Librarian Life, in which we meet with Christy Stansfield and Sherry Early, who have also been guests on some of our book club discussions and other things. And it's patterned in the same way So it is the same kind of discussion where we get together and instead of talking about books, we talk about what it is to be librarians and what's going on in our library life. So Tanya and Sarah, we have so many reasons to love you and be grateful for you. But today, I just want to thank you for bringing the library ladies into our lives and totally disrupting our lives. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, you're welcome.
0: Well, you guys have blessed us with you know, we've
3: gotten to know them better too. And now we have all these librarians (laughs) meeting and more popping up all the time. It's fantastic. It is.
0: I think that when there is no eco involved and you just care about the people that you're trying to serve and the way Gary D. Schmidt tries to care about his readers, I think that you guys and us and our library ladies sincerely care about the moms and the families and the readers. I think when you care about those things more than you care about, your own particular agenda, your own particular point of view, and you you care more about those other things, you are so much more willing to collaborate. And when you collaborate, everybody wins. Everybody gets stronger Mm -hmm. and everybody benefits. So we have just loved the collaboration between all of us. And we're coming up on the one-year mark anniversary of our first set of Library Ladies interviews. And so just... Feels like it's a perfectly fitting time for Diane to open her library and for us to launch the Library in Life podcast and so excited to see what, ha- what, what the magnificent idea machine has in store for next year. <laughs> well, and we have a couple of projects with the library ladies and with you
2: coming mm-hmm. up that are new also that will be coming in the next few months. So Can't there's just... Wait more exciting things. And I I do, I believe there's always going to be a new idea, (laughs) something new that's going to support families and support moms. We just don't know it yet, but so much goodness will
0: continue to come. Yes. Yay. So friends, we have been so busy working on so many projects. Um, And then you're beginning to see the fruits of some of those. And as Tanya says, there are some really big projects still coming that are in the works. And so that's part of why we have not been as present on social media as maybe I would like to be. But please do not take that as an indication that we don't want to talk to you. Quite the contrary. We are really, truly desiring to interact with you. And we've gotten a lot of messages and comments from you. And we appreciate all of those so very much. So if you'd like to chat and connect with us or connect with other listeners, please let us remind you to just check out our social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. None of us are on TikTok. (laughs) Um, But also our favorite place to hang out is the Biblioguides online community. It's a mighty network, which means that it is not as busy and congested and algorithm driven as Instagram and Facebook. So, It's totally free. We invite you to join us over there and come chat with us about our reading life, about the book clubs, about cool features and biblioguides or things you wish we were doing. We want to hear it all. So friends, thanks so very much for listening in. And until next time.